The following four podcasts, podcasts 26, 27, 28, and 29, are all responses to frequently asked questions uh, regarding podcast 19 um, uh, through 25, uh, all of which uh, deal with the validity or the reliability of uh, Scripture, the New Testament in particular. First question is, since we do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible, and it has been translated so many times, isn't it impossible to know what it originally said? That's a question I haven't heard in a long time. Perhaps the first thing I should say is something to clear up a slight confusion that exists in the question. I think the question may be confusing the translation of the Bible with its transmission. Translation involves rendering the words or text of one language into that of another. So the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures were, for the most part, originally written in Hebrew and then later translated into various languages. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, uh, common everyday Greek and fairly early translated into ancient uh, Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. I would assume, given the work of the Wycliffe Bible translators, that the uh, New Testament has now been translated into, uh, into every language of the world, certainly has been translated into every major language. What we do not want to think is that the New Testament was written in Greek, which was translated into Syriac, which was uh, translated into Coptic, which was translated into Latin, which was translated into Middle English, uh, which was translated into Elizabethan English, which was finally translated into modern English. Transmission refers to the ways in which the biblical texts were copied, preserved, and circulated before the invention of the printing press. What this, with this in, in mind, I think the question might be reframed as, given, what we, given that we do not have the original manuscripts of the New Testament and wouldn't know it even if we did, how do we know that the biblical text we have today reliably represents what the, what the text originally said? In responding to the question, I will focus on the New Testament, but uh, not without mentioning very quickly what is known as the Great Isaiah Scroll, uh, which, of course, is in Hebrew. A well-preserved and complete scroll of the Old Testament book Isaiah was one of the manuscripts discovered in the Qumran uh, community in uh, uh, in 1947, among the Dead Sea Scrolls. This scroll gave us a copy of Isaiah a thousand years older than the oldest copy we now possess, or had possessed before that. What is remarkable and pertinent to the question here is that this thousand years, that in this thousand years, no significant changes had occurred. Uh, although it had obviously been copied, it was the copy of, of many 
copies before it. Now, in regard to the New Testament, what we do not have, uh, while we do not have any of the original manuscripts, the autographs, as they are called, we do have more manuscripts and manuscript fragments than we do of any other great work of ancient literature. We only have, oh, 2,000 copies of Homer's the Iliad, and only about a dozen each for Herodotus, uh, for Aristotle, Julius Caesar, Pliny, and Tacitus. For the New Testament, we have 5,800 complete or fragments, uh, fragmented uh, Greek manuscripts cataloged, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 ancient manuscripts in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Coptic, and Armenian. About 25,000 in all. Additionally, Christian scholars, leaders, and teachers writing in the post-apostolic age, the generation following the apostles, quoted the New Testament so extensively it would be nearly possible to recreate the New Testament from their quotations. Since we do not have the original New Testament writings, the uh, original autograph or autographa, textual critics work with all these ancient manuscripts and fragments in an effort to determine the reliability of the biblical text as we have it today. The greater the number and the earlier the dating of any ancient book or manuscript scholars have, the easier it is to identify errors or discrepancies and to reconstruct a text closer to the original. The great medieval scholar, philosopher, and Catholic theologian Erasmus became convinced that the recovery of true Christian spirituality could be greatly helped by recovering the text of the New Testament in its original Greek. He consulted as many Old Testament manuscripts of the Bible um, as he could, as well as those in the original Greek. He noted and corrected things like obvious copyist errors. Eventually, he published a Greek New Testament with a Latin translation. Latin, uh, well, for what at that time would have been a newer Latin translation. Uh, <clears throat> Erasmus had begun the science and the art of textual uh, criticism, the art of um, uh, arriving at the textus receptus, which simply means the received text. Now, New Testament textual critics are concerned with all these ancient manuscripts and fragments of writings we have of the Bible. In short, textual critics and textual criticism involves the discovery and reading of the Bible uh, manuscripts, cataloging their contents, collating the way um, their text reads in comparison to other copies of the text. 
The object is to produce a Greek New Testament that responds as closely as possible to the original text. What having so many manuscripts in both the Greek and other ancient languages allows textual scholars to do is to identify whole families of manuscripts and the variants perpetuated within them. And that, that many manuscripts across more than a thousand years serves as a kind of laboratory in which it can be discovered how and what sorts of mistakes tended to be made. For example, um, a mistake made when the scribe's eyes uh, skipped a line, or when uh, translating one word um, uh, that sounded like another, but, but meant something else. Like when we write uh, T-H-E-R-E when we should have written T-H-E-I-R. When Bart Ehrman argued in his debate with Daniel Wallace that the work of later copyists was not as good as those of an earlier period, he didn't seem to realize that he was making Wallace's very point. The question Wallace should have pressed harder, I think, than he did, was, how do you know this? How do you know the scribes from one period were better than those from another. How do you know something is a scribal gloss and doesn't belong to the text? What forms your judgment as to how a text ought best be read? Isn't it because you have all these manuscripts from across the centuries to analyze and compare with one another? Here's what I think we can say with considerable confidence about the Textus Receptus, the received text of the Greek New Testament as it is now. The mistakes, whether quite minor and inconsequential, as nearly all are, are those mistakes that represent more serious conscious changes made by copyists are rather easily detected. I find it amusing that the very reason someone like the agnostic Bart Ehrman can come up with textual mistakes and changes to use in selling his grievances and, and challenging the veracity of the New Testament is that he knows, as one professionally trained, how the text ought to be read. <clears throat> Two. There are no mistakes or textual changes that when subjected to textual analysis and when interpreted in the context of the New Testament as a whole, create any difficulty for consistent, coherent, and reasonable Christian thought and practice. Three, here is a high level of probability, as Daniel Wallace argued in his debate with Ehrman, that textual critics have produced a Greek New Testament that is very exact in comparison to the wording of the original autographs. In the debate to which I am referring, Ehrman kept saying, kept replying, but we don't know for certain. He was, of course, correct. We don't know for certain because we do not have the original 
manuscripts. We don't have the original autographs for comparison. But Ehrman's reply is interesting. Notice he never argued that we do not have a high level of probability, but that we can't be certain. What all of this results in is not evidence that what the Bible says is um, uh, is true, of course, uh, that's a different matter. But that the received Greek text, that, but that the received Greek text, used as the basis for translating the New Testament into any modern language, is fundamentally reliable and trustworthy in its correspondence to the original manuscript of the New Testament. Here's uh, the second uh, question, and, and, the, um, and the only other one that I'll answer on uh, in this podcast. We'll go to, to others in the next podcast. <clears throat> this person says, I, I struggle with the idea that the Bible is metaphorical rather than factual. It feels like that is just a way of explaining away rather than explaining difficulties. I know that it is argued that something in the Bible can be metaphorically true, but factually false. I have a hard time telling whether you agree or disagree with that. Well, first of all, uh, let me say I'm disappointed in myself for not being clear about that. I thought I was, but maybe not. I will try to do better in responding to you here. First of all, I think the ever-changing vocabulary of scholars and the way they make words mean something they don't ordinarily mean can make following them difficult. So when you read the Bible, it has to be read figuratively or metaphorically or read as myth. It is frequently a code for saying the events and stories which you read in the Bible are fiction, but they contain philosophical truths and helpful insights for living life. And so you'll hear that uh, that a metaphor uh, can be true, can be true in a, in a deeper way. And, and this is what that means. Now, a story obviously need not be factual in order to express a true principle, moral, or deep meaning. Uh, consider, for example, Aesop's fables, Dostoevsky's short stories, How Much Land Does a Man Need, or The Peasant Mari. Uh, those are true stories, in, in a sense, but they're factually false. The children's fantasy uh, could be considered Little Red Riding Hood or biblical parables like The Good Samaritan, The Prodigal Son, or The Pearl of Great Price, none of which are meant to be understood or explored as real events. They are all fictional stories communicating some bit of folk wisdom or spiritual insight. I would say that to read them metaphorically is to read them literally because it respects their genre, their metaphorical or figurative quality, if you will. I doubt the book of Jonah is about a real event. For one thing, it lacks some of the elements, like 
oracles characteristic of other books of prophecy. And for another, the ending is not really about Nineveh, but Jonah's bigoted attitude and self-centered values. In that narrative, Nineveh comes under the indictment of God for its oppression of the poor and is urged to repent or be destroyed. But ironically, in the end, Jonah is the one who lacks divine compassion, and Jonah is the one who needs to repent. There are then many stories in the Bible whose factuality, whether they happened in any sense, really does not matter. A fictional story or metaphor can teach true truth, and and, and that's true. However, there are other stories where whether they happened does matter and matters greatly. The process God used in creating the cosmos is immaterial. Whether God is the source of all the beauty and goodness and earthly reality in which we are immersed matters supremely. That is, God either was or was not the agent of our creation, and which of those alternatives we commit to is of ultimate significance. If the Exodus is merely a metaphor, as popular authors like Marcus Borg and Richard Rohr contend, for the human longing for liberation, for freedom, then it is only a passing sentimental interest. If the Exodus, not the Exodus imagined by Hollywood, but the Exodus of real Hebrew slaves led to freedom by Moses happened, if it was a moment in which God acted to affect real human liberation, then it was something unutterably marvelous and consequential. Let me put it this way. Theologians and Bible scholars have long noted the Bible's use of what is known grammatically as the indicative and imperative moods. Over time, their observations led to the formulation of a profound paradigm which can be concisely stated like this. The imperative for humanity always arises out of the indicative of God. The imperative for humanity always arises out of the indicative of God. In Scripture, the indicative mood states what God has done, is doing, or will do, or what God is like. The imperative mood is used for what we should do in response to something or someone. Even faith itself is not so much about belief as it is our response to what God has done in Christ. If it's hard for you to grasp faith in that way, in that sense, maybe you can see it by comparing faith to love, which is perhaps a a little easier. That is, perhaps love is a little easier to understand as responsiveness. Love responding to love. The imperative love arising out of the indicative of love. 
The imperative arises, always arises, then, out of the indicative. Marcus Borg likes to argue that God does not interfere or intervene in human affairs. But what he is saying is that there is no indicative. And if there is no indicative, there is no imperative. There is no reason <clears throat> imperative for the, the social justice he advocates. And we are left adrift on a rough sea without rudder or oar or compass. I will say this as a final response to this question about metaphor and how it relates to factuality. Non-confessing, liberal, progressive, secular scholars, or whatever you want to call them, are correct in their assertion that we can become overly concerned, can become obsessed with factuality. What nearly every one of them fails to recognize is that they are as obsessed with factuality as the most confessing, conservative, born-again, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical, whatever you want to call them, Christians. If the conservative Christian is the scripture addict, the liberal is the codependent. I'm not saying that facts don't matter. Of course, they do. Truth at every level at every level matters. I am saying I would rather live Scripture well than debate it well. 